Hi, just a quick note before we get into the show. I'm really excited to share this conversation I recently had with Carol Horton. It was extremely thoughtful and thought-provoking, and so, therefore, I am breaking it up into two episodes. Thank you for listening to Yoga for the Revolution. These kinds of conversations are why I do this show. You'll be able to find all past and future episodes on yogafortherevolution.org. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Google Play, wherever you do such things. And you can find me for further conversation at facebook.com slash yoga for the revolution without any further interruption here is part one of a conversation with carol horton about the documentary wild wild country And welcome to Yoga for the Revolution, a show about self-care in the age of resistance. Today, I'm excited about our topic and our guest. We're going to be talking about the documentary Wild Wild Country. Wild Wild Country is a Netflix documentary series about the controversial Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who's also known as Osho, and a woman who is his personal assistant, Ma'anand Sheila, and their community of followers in Rajneesh Puram, a community located in Oregon. And it was released in Netflix last month. That was mid-March 2018 and has been causing a little bit of a stir ever since. We're going to dive into that with Carol Horton. I'm really honored to be sharing this conversation with her. Carol Horton is a writer, educator, activist working at the intersection of mindful yoga, social science, and healing justice. She's an author, an editor, uh, as well as Vice President of the Yoga Service Council, co-founder of Chicago Socially Engaged Yoga Network, a member of Ethics and Conduct Committee of the Yoga Alliance Standards Review Project, and an associate editor of the scholarly journal Asian Medicine. Carol, I may have rushed through that a little bit, but why don't you say hi and add anything I may have missed there? Hi, thank you. No, that's great. You know, I think that's enough about me. Let's just dive in. Great. <laughs> yeah. We're here talking about Wild Wild Country, the documentary about Rajneesh Param in Oregon. Tell me a little bit about your experience watching it. Had you heard about it and then watched it? Did it just pop up on your Netflix? How did you come across it? You know, uh, to be honest, I think I saw a post about it on Facebook. And then uh, we have Netflix and we use it pretty regularly. So I went and checked it out and started watching it and I immediately got hooked. <laughs> I was just so drawn in and interested um, that I watched the whole thing in a couple of days. Yeah, same with me. I saw someone talking about it on Facebook and I was like, that sounds interesting. And then it you know, went on the list and then the, you know, the next day and then the next day someone else was talking about it. And I did finally finally sit down to watch. And after the first episode, I couldn't believe there are six of these. Like, this keeps going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really, really a well-done series. And uh, I mean, it was also just interesting that, that Netflix funded and produced this. So, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're putting out more content than mm -hmm. I would have thought humanly possible this year. Right, right. So they're really <laughs> going for it. And I'm excited they that they're, they're diving into topics like this. Yeah. Had you heard of 
Rajneesh or Osho before that? What was your experience or awareness of his teachings? I I had heard of him, definitely. Um, I, I did not have any sort of in-depth relationship with uh, Osho's work or uh, know anyone who had been deeply involved in it. But having been involved for quite a few years now in the online yoga world and also then uh, writing about modern yoga culture, history, politics, that kind of thing. Uh, I had definitely gotten a familiarity. So on the one hand, it used to be more common, uh, at least in my social media feeds, to have people post these inspirational Osho quotes. I think there was an era uh, back a little while now when inspirational quotes were really big on Facebook and Twitter. That sort of faded in the Trump era. <laughs> um, or maybe it's just my social media feeds have shifted. I don't know, but I don't see it as much. So there was that. It was kind of popping up a lot or relatively a lot. But then more through my research, I had over the years just kind of learned a reasonable amount about the history of these kind of big name gurus in the yoga and meditation worlds and um, the issues surrounding them. And then on top of that, I'm actually old enough that I have a vague historical memory of the days when these orange clad strange people out in Oregon were doing odd things. And there was some leader with Rolls Royces. Like I very, very vaguely remember the days when that was actually in the news. So that was also kind of an anchor for me. But that that's about it. That's all I knew before the series started. Isn't that fascinating, too? Because one thing that I thought the documentary series did really well was separating into two groups, the Rajneeshis and the people who are already living in Antelope, already living in that town in Oregon, and and telling both sides of the story, and I think being somewhat objective in that in that way, but at the same time, you got a view of how the rest of the world was seeing these events, how the media was portraying these events. And for me, it was really interesting to see that compared with, yeah, the quotes and the you know what would have been memeable content had it had it popped into the social media sphere a little bit later. You know, I had seen his books in libraries and bookstores, you know, just kind of floating in and around the yoga community for long enough. And the names will will float past. And like you, I didn't necessarily um, get drawn into having a little bit of a deeper experience with his teachings. But it was interesting for me to hear like, oh, Osho, I know that name. Yeah. Lots of feel good quotes or like interesting things to say. And then seeing the media portrayal of this person and the Rolls Royce and the, even my husband was like, oh yeah, you're watching that thing about the sex guru. That's not a connection I would have made, you know, based on the little things that I heard. So I thought it was interesting to see the way his legacy had filtered through the media out into the world. Right. And when you were talking, I just realized that for both of us, there had to have been this light bulb moment when we realized that Osho this name that we had seen attached these inspirational quotes floating around in the books and this and that was one and the same with Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, the, and you know, the orange clad people. Like I I remember uh, when I realized that that was in the course of doing this, this um, 
I never like researched it specifically, but I remember coming across one of the well, the the series in the Oregonian, um, where one of the journalists from you know back in the day, back at the time, wrote about all this. Somehow I came across that online, and I put it together then. It was like a thunderbolt, kind of like, what really? <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah. I kind of vaguely remember that. And then here's all this crazy information. I remember, I didn't read the whole thing. It's very extensive. But I do remember coming about the across the part about sprinkling poison on the salad bar at, you know, in this these little Western town. And just, just, you know, it's like, this is crazy. And then, wait, that's Osho? That's Osho, <laughs> yeah. Do you remember a, a moment when you put all that together? I mean, for me, it was... You know, watching the documentary, and I, I don't remember now what happened in what episode. So I guess I'll just say if you haven't watched it yet, spoiler alert. I don't, you know, I don't know if that's <laughs> if that's really appropriate, but <laughs> I mean, I think so. <laughs> it's a month later. It's really incumbent upon everyone to watch their own thing. But um, for me, the lightning bolt kind of came with not the recognition that Osho was Rajneesh or Bhagwan, but uh, they were showing. Uh, footage of the dynamic meditation and the footage was you know presented as salacious and there were nude people and you know they were really uninhibited and liberated from any normal societal boundary Mm -hmm. so I looked at that and had the initial judgment that you know any (laughs) feel like like normal American would have, which is like, what are those crazy people doing? Until I realized that I've done dynamic meditation. I was dressed at the time, but I've done that exercise a little bit different. Uh, I felt like there was more of a safe environment around personal space. And hopefully that's an evolution that took place over the last few decades. But I thought what was interesting to me was the fact that the way it was portrayed was able to take any benefit out and just focus on how crazy and weird it was. And there were crazy and weird things and there were criminal things and there were very, very unsafe things happening. But I was a little bit sad that the focus in that particular instance was just salacious and sex focused as opposed to, well, what are they actually doing? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I agree that footage was disturbing and I didn't feel like it related to my experience of dynamic meditation really in any way, except that it was uninhibited and you're encouraged to make sounds or do things that you weren't, wouldn't normally feel comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. And I thought what the documentary wasn't about was Osho's actual teachings and if there was value in them or not, based on the fact that now we know all of this criminal activity that happened under his watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It really did not go into that side of it. And to the extent that I think mm, there was a presentation in which a very highly sympathetic viewer could see good in what was going on, it was really through more of the social lens. Like, they cooperated and built all this stuff together. They um, gave food and shelter to homeless people. and Before drugging them, right. Yeah, I mean, and I actually was surprised the extent to which I saw some comments on Facebook, not in my own personal feed, but in others that popped up, where there were some people who watched the whole series and, and did see it through that kind of lens, sort of, you know, well, Sheila was really doing all this great stuff and trying to help people. But it was... As you said, um, 
even through that sympathetic lens, which, you know, I really didn't have so much myself, um, it, it wasn't focused on or deeply interested in the, the content of the teachings, either philosophically or the nature of the practices and what people got out of them. I, I feel like that was definitely sort of a silence in the film. And there was enough to cover. You know, I mean, there was definitely a lot yeah, of different plenty. dynamics yeah. there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it did, for me, it sparked uh, recognition of there are a lot of our artists and heroes in the current society who we're now finding out have done things that are criminal and inappropriate and hurtful. And does that change how we view their message or their art? There are a lot of people who, you know, won't make another Woody Allen movie or won't watch another Louis C.K. special or, you know, name name your person who's been mm-hmm. taken down by the the proud and, and vocal uprising of women saying, you know, this stuff isn't really cool anymore. Mm-hmm. But the question keeps coming up, you know, what about that art? Is it, you know, is the comedy still funny? Is the art still worth watching? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, and... And it made me think a little bit about Osho in this context. Do we just throw out everything he ever said because he was involved in really diabolical criminal activity? Or is there something in there that's worth saving? Or do we throw everything out and say, why don't we just listen to people who may have more integrity? And I think mm-hmm. that that's, <laughs> that's still a question that our, our current society is working through. Yeah, I, those, there's so many huge issues there. Um, I mean, I guess in the biggest picture, just my personal philosophy on this stuff is I I think that the complete kind of throw out, you know, that which is tainted by um, histories that we find repugnant at this point, while it can be incredibly well-intentioned and and motivated by a deep passion for for justice and so on, it's quite a dangerous road to go down um, too blindly and strongly because in my view, you know, human condition is kind of essentially always have is going to have tragic elements to it. And when you start insisting on finding purity of origin for anything human, sooner or later you will get disillusioned. So that's just kind of my view. Like I feel like we have to grapple with the shadows and light in ourselves, in our family histories, in our community histories, in our social histories. and, And that is just the, nature of life. That's my kind of personal philosophy. But, um, you know, when it comes to more particular issues, like how, how to, like, do we actually want to study Osho or do we want to watch the Woody Allen film? You know, then you kind of have to go down to a more granular level. Um, so I think it's helpful to kind of separate out, um, the issues that arise for people who actively practice yoga and meditation and or meditation, um, like we do, um, or I, assuming you do, um, I certainly do, and um, how we feel about or how we grapple with the history in our particular trajectory of, you know, people like Osho, which is once you start learning about the history of, let's just focus on yoga in um, the modern era, there are so many examples of this yeah, that are so fundamental. And it raises big questions, um, which I have thought about a lot it, it raises some really big questions to grapple with, for sure. So one thing I was thinking that was helpful for me is that there's a lot of discussion, again, within the yoga community around these issues, 
um, of can you separate the teachings from the teacher, right? Like, are the teachings still valid, even though the teacher may have been abusive, particularly given that so many of us got so much out of those teachings or, and or practices, which are part of the teachings. And even though I never studied Osho, I mean, for the little I've heard of him and so on, I, I have no doubt that what he has said connects into the general wellspring of work that I personally have found quite helpful. So I'm sure I would, if I took the time to go into it and read his books, I'm sure I would find things that resonated deeply with me. But here's what I'm thinking now is that we make a mistake. Like the question of can we separate from the, the teacher from the teachings is not the right question. I think the question, if we reframe the question to what are the implicit and explicit conscious and unconscious teachings that are conveyed in a um, social cultural context in which there are the explicit teachings, there's what's said, there's what's written in the books, but there are then the contextual teachings, which is the nature of the social relationships the dynamics that people experience emotionally and energetically when they are hearing that stuff, when they're part of that scene, how it actually plays out in real life. That's also perhaps an even more powerful teaching for the people who are involved, right? So the teaching is mm, always contextualized in what's actually happening. So if Osho's giving his teaching in that um, giant, you know, room up on the dais on a throne um, in a context where um, it's a very cult-like dynamic and all sorts of, you know, increasingly disturbing things are happening. Part of the teaching is that in order to really benefit from this content or these practices, all of these kind of compromises in terms of um, maybe your personal sense of autonomy and ethics and, uh, you know, so on are, are are part of it. It's a package deal, right? And that's a very different experience than if someone is, say, you know, engaged in like, say, you're just working as an elementary school teacher and you live in the suburbs and you have two kids and you are maybe you go to church every Sunday and check Osho's book out of the library and you read some of it and you put it into your context and your life and your framework. It's actually not the same teaching in a way. Does that make sense? Because the whole framework of how you're taking that information is utterly different. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to talk about the different question, not separate the teachings from the teacher, but let's mold them even closer together. And then also let's add in context. So we know not only where this teaching is coming from, but when and where and how it's landing in the world in which it's being messaged, right? So it's not just, here's a painting, it's here's a painting by Picasso. Okay, it's a painting by Picasso. Picasso was this kind of man and he lived in this kind of world and this is what he was reacting to. And then all of a sudden, my museum experience is shifted by the more knowledge I have about all of that context. And I think if I'm hearing you correctly, part of what you're saying is that holds true for these teachings as well. You have to take into consideration the full body of the experience, including the context and the man. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about um, some, this gets a little abstract, but um, I've been reading recently some 
um, work. Well, on, on the, the embodied mind is the theme and, and the idea there's a kind of emerging critique of um, the understanding of consciousness that's very brain, like brain centric, um, not in the sense that we understand that the brain is the seat of, uh, you know, our cognition and so on and so forth and absolutely central, but really thinking about how all of our systems, um, of consciousness are interconnected so that what's happening, there's a, there's a dialogue between body and brain and also then between individual and environment and social and natural environment. And that all comes together to how we learn, how we perceive what we think is happening and real and so on. So in other words, we can't like really take ourselves out mm. of our um, context in terms of our consciousness. And, um, it's a different way. I, I think when you start thinking about like that model, which to me is is pretty compelling in terms of my understanding of how I've experienced the world and so on. And I don't believe that context shape. There's a, it's all a dynamic system, right? So it's not like we're totally mm, controlled and shaped by the external environment, but it's hugely important in terms of our our self-understandings and our own sense of our own individual consciences. So in other words, we're not as individual as we might think. And once you start thinking of the brain as um, not like this disembodied sort of individual, not connected to anything else, but its own sort of operating system, seat of consciousness, then the whole kind of model shifts. So that may seem a little abstract, but that's the way I've been thinking about it. And just thinking about how, um, yeah, so whether it's the Picasso painting or the Osho teachings, the the teachings that he gave um, as people experience them in the situation explored in the documentary was, let's just put it this way, I, I don't think you could, you could have very parallel things now, but that whole thing, that whole wave that caught up so many people in it and kind of wish them off into cults in the late 1970s. I mean, there's still cults today, but it was like, it was a big thing then, you know? And I vaguely remember it, as I said, as I'm old enough to vaguely remember it. Like, that was a kind of historical moment that is really not happening now. So perhaps we have other waves, and I think we do, we have other waves that are happening now that are like sweeping people up in these forms of thought and so on. And, and we feel sort of like, that's just my individual thing. This is what I believe. But we're in this kind of um, matrix of uh, that's very social and, you know, the shared ideas form our meanings and how we perceive them. So in other words, so the teachings of Osho at that time and that place, how they really played out for people on a deep, meaningful, personal level, you couldn't exactly replicate the same thing today because that whole context is is gone. But you'll certainly find parallels. Does that make sense? Or is it too abstract? No, I think it's both abstract and it makes sense. Okay, good. I was wondering that too. Part of part of the way I think that comes through in the documentary itself is through the interviews with the people who lived in the community, some of whom were clearly, I don't know if much is really clear uh, in terms of culpability, but some of whom were, were clearly moved by his presence and touched in a way that can't come through on paper. And some of that can only happen in a particular place, in a particular time, with a particular group. That is not recreatable, necessarily. Right. And they also talked about their experiences with each other. You know, how 
you know, we were working together. We shared this, you know, utopian vision. Everyone pitched in, you know, and you saw those pictures of them sort of smiling and building stuff. It was like work is fun, play is fun, you know, because we're working together. I mean, there was that real kind of utopian community kind of vibe. And I, I can totally see how powerful and appealing that would be. I mean, don't we all kind of, or, you know, there's so many people like, we would love to have a world in which, you know, we could cooperate, we could build things together for the common good, we could then also have room for fun together. I mean, it's, you know, that's like a really idealistic vision. And I think it's deeply appealing. And so if you could actually physically go somewhere where you experience, like you were having relationships with people, it wasn't all just like, the devotees to Osho, that that was, it's so interesting how important he was to organize all the rest of it. But they also had these relationships with each other. And another thing this makes me think of was really interesting when I, as soon as I heard about this, I, even before I watched the whole thing, I posted about it on Facebook, kind of encouraging people to watch it. And I got an interesting little discussion going, which I think is how I connected with you. And some um, people I know just through kind of online social media, yoga related stuff said, well, hey, I, you know, I had like multiple friends who went off to Oregon and were part of this and they were wonderful people, <laughs> you know, and um, I, and I kind of thought, I mean, if I had been kind of the right age at the right time, I mean, I'm pretty idealistic person, or at least I used to be until I went through waves of disillusionment after disillusionment <laughs> and I got older, um, I could totally see myself like throwing myself into something like this. And if even if I had questions about the larger thing, if I form strong relationships with other people who are participating in this, like those relationships would maybe be giving me the message that, hey, you know, these teachings are really valid and this whole thing is really special. And because the immediacy of those personal relationships would be very personally important, you know? Yeah, I've stayed at jobs. Now, we're not even talking about guru relationships. I've stayed at jobs that I've questioned the moral integrity of because I've built really important personal relationships with the people around me. And that's just everyday life. So I can absolutely imagine being in a situation where those interpersonal relationships and the shared goals could take over in terms of uh, being able to question authority or question things that are, you know, frankly, what what one in the everyday world might call above my pay grade, which is something that, I, you know, I think comes and goes in waves in American society. We're either like super psyched about questioning authority or we're not. And, you know, maybe that changes every 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that people, one of the things that we had initially maybe exchanged an email about was, for me, what struck me was this dual drive and it's all about attraction and resistance or attraction and rejection it's all about wanting to be the the human need and desire to be part of something to be part of a group and then potentially also how that could be enhanced by setting yourself apart from a different group mm -hmm. i'm part of this i am not part of that and that can be so strong that we can be blinded to what's really running this or what that the other may have benefits too, or, you know, it, it, it can really um, put us in our own bubble of what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And that 
does seem to be running rampant today. I mean, that's what I was kind of thinking of in terms of the current waves, like just of, of sort of social, cultural, I don't know, dynamics. Um, like in the late 1970s, you know, there was the, all this kind of people, you know, among certain groups, but it was, you know, people seeking enlightenment, these, you know, sort of charismatic teachers, you know, building these utopian communities, people doing all these like wild exploratory sort of, you know, therapies and practices and like pushing themselves into really dangerous territory because there was a sense that like you were going to break through to something amazing and important and transformative and so on and so forth. And now I feel like um, there's some parallel dynamics, but it's more uh, sort of political, um, less, you know, spiritual, at least ostensibly, you know, those words are all sort of, um, you can take them apart, but in terms of everyday parlance, you know, that seems to be where the center of gravity is. But as I think you said in your email, I mean, that same kind of dynamic of like, let's, you know, I want to be part of a group where my identity is firm because it's rooted in this group that is committed to the same thing. I understand sort of my place, my identity, my purpose, you know, and our group has a righteousness because we are battling, you know, in this case for whatever justice or saving Western civilization or any of the many things that people think they're battling for today. And uh, then, of course, you have your enemy, you know, and in or enemies. And, you know, that again, going back to the documentary, I agree with you that the way that the um, filmmakers set it up so that we got to hear from the antelope people and how they perceived it. And then we got to hear from the, um, you know, Rajneesis, Rajneesis, sorry, and how they perceived it. And it was just kind of laid out. It was just so fascinating because kind of the percept, like the, the reality, like it's kind of like they're right next door to each other, but they're living in different worlds. Wow. I'm stopping there. Yeah. It's not really a cliffhanger, but it's kind of like a cliffhanger. But next week, we're going to have episode two, the second part of this conversation. For now, thank you once again for listening. Please join us again next week because we get into politics and the Rolling Stones and talk more about the practices of yoga and the conscious and unconscious mind. It is a whole thing. In the meantime, if you would like to learn more about Carol Horton, please go to her website, carolhortonphd.com. And she does a lot of work with the Yoga Service Council. So you can learn more about that work at yogaservicecouncil.org. They're doing a ton of work around making yoga and mindfulness truly accessible to everyone. So I encourage you to visit that website and join us next week. Until next time, keep breathing and live to fight another day. (laughs) 